Uh, but we're going to pray now for some. We're not doing. We're not doing this yet. We're going to. For those who uh, are perhaps unfamiliar uh, with Joshua, we're going to do a very quick uh, overview of it. Uh, because we're going to do it in studies, we're going to do it in uh, sermon series, so we're going to get a lot of this information, but just to orientate those of us who are here to get our heads around, I thought Simon really positioned us helpfully, particularly some of the spiritual issues that come up in Joshua by taking us to Psalm 44 and taking us to the New Testament, particularly Acts and Ephesians, which we'll quickly kind of finish our time together on. But Joshua, before I get to genre, um, it's the book that relates Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan, but not just a conquest, you know, without reference to anything, in accordance with the promises made by God. That is what Joshua is. And it's something like, a, you might call it a literary bridge. When you think of the Bible as a storyline, it's the literary bridge between the wilderness experience of God's people and then their troubles in the land, those early struggles that's related in the book of Joshua, it is, uh, in Judges. So Joshua is the bridge between those two things. Explains how they get from the wilderness to eventually we want a king at the end of Judges and the beginning of uh, Samuel. But what is Joshua? The question of genre comes up. Um, I think when we think of Joshua, well, it's a story, it's a narrative, and that's, what, uh, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to say. But in the Jewish tradition, Joshua is one of what is known as the former prophets. So it's not just a historical record book. It's one of the former prophets. They include Joshua... Judges, Samuel and Kings, they're all part of the former prophets and Joshua is at the beginning of that category. What's the difference there? What is the difference between it being, say, prophecy and just historical narrative? Well, it's kind of the difference between preaching and reading a textbook on something. Prophecy means to convict, not merely to inform. It's to draw a response. And so as we read Joshua... A question that it's worth all of us asking as we read it in, in our discipleship groups, as we have it read to us in church and as we have it preached to us, um, is what is the writer preaching about when telling me this story? All of Old Testament history is, in effect, prophetic. It is a declaration from God about God. The writer that God has inspired is trying to help us understand something about God, but more than that, to respond to God in some way. What is the genre of uh, Joshua? Yes, it's a historical narrative, but it's helpful to think about it in the terms of its original composition as a Jewish prophetic book, one of the former prophets. By the way, former prophets distinguishes it from Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, those ones that come uh, later. Okay, authorship. These questions are always much more straightforward in New Testament studies. (laughs) So we looked at 2 Corinthians last term, authorship, Paul wrote, to Corinthians, to the church in Corinth. He wrote it this date. That sort of thing is much easier to ascertain. Not so much in Old Testament studies. Um, Like most of the Old Testament historical books and former prophets, the human author is anonymous. We're not told who wrote Joshua. There are lots of theories that people have. Some people say Joshua himself. Uh, That's probably unlikely uh, because there's just too many references within the text that seem to place it sometime later. Um, but it's related to the question of the authorship of Joshua is also part of the same discussion as to trying to date the exodus from Egypt and the conquest itself. They're all part of the same uh, discussion in a way. Uh, and most of these discussions are based on archaeolog- archaeological evidence and theories. And so if you 
you know, in preparing maybe if you're a discipleship group leader, if you're just a particularly uh, invested church member in this series and you come up, you either have on your shelf or you borrow from someone some sort of commentary, they'll, they'll talk about these sorts of things. Uh, they'll talk about how we know what happened in the Old Testament and the archaeological uh, evidence that's there for a conquest based on, you know, um, ruins and how, when they can date certain destructions of cities and layers and all those sorts of things and the question of when it was written flows out of that if you believe it was written around the time by someone or some people a generation or so removed from that well that places it quite early 14th 15th 14th century bc um also this kind of comes down to a question of uh you might have heard of the difference between kind of conservative uh scholarship on these issues and critical scholarship Critical scholarship, generally speaking, doesn't really view God's word as inspired. It's a product wholly of human composition. And so you'll hear in critical scholarship things like, well, there are many authors. All these sources come together to end up with this final product over a long period of time. Uh, a more conservative scholarship will say, no, no, God is working through only a handful of human authors. And it's probably pretty close to the time of the events, or at least the oral tradition has kept it together. They're all parts of the questions of authorship. But also the question of authorship leads us to the question of audience. If we assume, as those of us here who believe that God's word is coherent and inspired, well, then we have to ask ourselves, who is the initial audience? So in a question of two Corinthians, quite straightforward. It's the Corinthian church. Who's the audience that the writer has directly in mind? Um, and that's a question of what uh, people talk about as life setting. What's the setting that the author was in when he or she wrote this text um, and that leads us to the audience and again there are many theories on this um, but I find that uh, Dara Ruff Davies whose book No Falling Words his commentary on Joshua uh, is a wonderful little commentary um, both Mike and I have a copy of it I commend it to you as a really great aid to reading the book uh, he writes this he says I suggest that Joshua substantially as it stands would prove potent preaching material to the judge's generation who was slack about driving out the remnants of the Canaanites and therefore created a climate of apostasy that's kind of going away from God to occur in a most predictable way. And I think that makes a lot of sense. And particularly when we understand Joshua in its role as a literary bridge from the wilderness generation, Deuteronomy, the giving of the law and the renewal of the covenant there to the judge's generation, you can see how someone who's in that judge's generation as things are starting to devolve in the land that they have conquered that God has blessed them with going well we really need to record how God got us here and what he expected of us once we were in the land and so that's that's one theory I think that's a pretty coherent theory other people posit much later dates um, ultimately these are unanswerable questions so we can't actually determine and that's one of the challenges particularly of the Old Testament um, we can't determine in the same way we can with the New Testament um, but mm -hmm. oral tradition, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so the same school of thought uh, that says uh, that, that Joshua was probably written pretty close to and maybe of that judge's generation says, well, therefore Deuteronomy was also compiled. Uh, the Pentateuch, 
um, was compiled, the first five books, um, and particularly Deuteronomy. And in Joshua, we have references to the book of the law. And at the end of Deuteronomy, it's recorded Moses r having written down these things in the book of the law. Um, and so there is a record of the things that happened to that. Um, and again, uh, certain critical scholars will say, well, yeah, they say that, but really it happened a thousand years later. Um, but yes, so there is exist in existence at the least both an existing oral tradition of the Exodus generation and the record of those things in some written form uh, by this stage. Um, in terms of the structure of the book, it basically has three main sections. Uh, and I think you, um, you can, uh, you know, I like, I like my alliteration. So uh, you can break those sections into conquest, consolidation, and covenant. Conquest, consolidation, and covenant. Conquest is chapters 1 to 12, which is the taking of the land. The taking of the land. And if you're at all familiar with Joshua, or even if you just pull it open now and flip through it quickly, you'll see that's where a lot of the events that maybe you're familiar with come from. Uh, the preparation and the survey, so uh, coming to Jericho, encountering Rahab, crossing the Jordan, Jericho, uh, I, the those cities, the incident with the Gibeonites and the Am and Amorites and the taking of the southern and northern kingdoms, that all happens in the first 12 chapters, really charts the conquest, the actual land taking. Then consolidation, the middle chapters, 13 to 22, which really is the, after the taking of the land, it's the dividing up of the land. Um, and so you see chapter 13 says this is the land that's remaining that hasn't been fully taken yet. Uh, then we see the western tribes and the Transjordan tribes, those who had land on the east of the Jordan. We, ha we see their accounts of their land and how that um, is undertaken and divided up. And finally, covenant, which is really the future of the land. So we've seen the taking of the land, the, the dividing up of the land, and the future of the land. And the covenant is really a renewal of the covenant. In the same way that Deuteronomy ends with Moses getting God's people to renew the covenant, as well as laying a challenge before them saying, let's face it, you probably can't do this because we know what we're like. Jo the same thing happens in Joshua 23 and 24. There is a renewal of the covenant, and that includes Joshua's farewell, and Joshua's death is also recorded there. Um, in terms of the campaign itself, um, and we'll, I'll make sure I include a map like this in the study booklets, because I think it is helpful, particularly when it's talking about events. Um, those three things you see there, there's, um, the campaign itself really takes place in three stages as well. There's the central campaign, so again, that um, charts chapters 1 to 10, um, and all the events that happen there, that's really going through the middle, crossing Jordan, going through the middle. Um, then there's the southern campaign, and that's uh, um, in chapter the end of chapter 10, uh, briefly uh, charts that, and then finally there's the northern campaign, which um, in chapter 11 is recounted. Uh, and they're, they're much more brief accounts, as you can see, that's just saying, and then... Israel took over these things, and then Israel took over there, and that was it. Um, so that's uh, going to be a helpful map, that sort of thing, just to kind of, if you're reading through it and people are going, well, where is this? I don't get why this is an issue here. Well, look where Gibeon is in relation to where they were. That's why it's an issue. Those sorts of things um, are going to be helpful. Uh, the theological message of the book, just kind of to finish uh, here, um, it's important to remember that Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy, is a significant background to the book of Joshua, not only because it is the book that in the chronology of the Old Testament comes before it, but particularly because it's the book 
that has covenant promises and lays out the consequences of Israel breaking the covenant that they've made with God. And so Joshua is first and foremost, as you can tell by the title of our series, is first and foremost about the fulfillment of God's promises or God's promises in action, what that looks like. And so all the events that happen in Joshua that we look at need to be understood through this lens. That means events such as holy war. Joshua is a book that has been used to justify various nations in time since who claim that they are doing invasion work on behalf of God. How does what we might call the holy war that we encounter in Joshua, which I think it must be acknowledged is probably one of the harder things for us to struggle with as readers today. Um, Well, in in in, in Joshua, the holy war is the means of promise fulfillment. It's the means of promise fulfillment. There are two sides to um, it's necessary for the fulfillment of God's promises because if you remember, God's promises are twofold. Blessings to Abraham's descendants in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15 formally and judgment in Genesis 15. God says to, um, to Abraham that your descendants will come and take this land as a judgment on the sin of the Amorites and that will happen when the sin of the Amorites reaches its full measure in this, at this point and that is what we encounter. That is, we, that is a time that we get to. Um, but that's a particular uh, purpose of God that's being worked out at that time of Joshua. So that's why the promises, the fulfillment of God's promises is an important lens through which to view that. Land and rest. Why is the land so important? Why do they care so much about this land and this idea of resting in the land? Well, remember where they've been. A nomadic man was called by God. A people grew from him. They ended up in, in imprisonment in Egypt and they came out of Egypt. They wandered the wilderness This is part of God's promises. It's the goal of his promise fulfillment is that they will have a place of their own and be God's people in God's place under God's rule. The unity of Israel. It's interesting, isn't it? Abraham is the one person to whom these promises are made. And yet he is a one recipient and yet all his descendants are in a sense treated as one as well. And you see that throughout the book of Deuteronomy. All Israel is referred to. All Israel is addressed time and time again. And in Joshua, we see a number of times the idea and the principle of corporate solidarity, the one and the whole. There's very little distinction between those two things. So one man sins and the whole nation falls under judgment in chapter 7. And finally, leadership, the source of promise fulfillment. So Joshua is presented as the divinely appointed leader of Israel and the successor to Moses. He's the guy who's going to lead them, and that's great. But ultimately, the Lord himself is the leader of Israel. As Simon said in his uh, little opening thing there, in the same way that in Acts, it's not the Acts of the Apostles, it's actually the Acts of the risen Lord Jesus. And it's the same here, that um, the Lord is the leader of Israel. He is the one who uniquely has given them the land before they've even taken it. He is the one who can fight their battles for them like in Jericho where they don't really do a thing. Um, And he's with them just as he always promised. So he is the source of promise fulfillment, which is such a great tragedy when you then read through into Judges and you see that without a king, they just devolve. And then even when they ask for a king, that's a stab to God's heart. They want a human king. They don't recognize they already have the greatest leader that they ever will need. So these are themes that come out and need to be understood as fulfillments of God's promise. And finally, the New Testament. How does that point us to the New Testament? Well, the Joshua, the name Joshua, uh, as many of you may know, means the Lord saves. 
And the name Jesus is simply the Greek version of Joshua. And so Jesus' name means the Lord saves. And you may remember in Matthew 1.21, when the angel appears and says his name will be Jesus because he will save the people from their sins. Because he, the Lord, will save. Um, and that's, so J- Jesus is the greater namesake of Joshua. Um, I'll just leave on that slide for a moment while Simon takes a photo. <laughs> Um, and then we see some of those themes that arise in Joshua finding fulfillment in the New Testament as well themes like promised rest so Jesus, Joshua's greater namesake he brings God's people into an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken away we see that in 1 Peter 1 verses 3 to 5 he also provides them with the rest that Joshua could not attain they get a measure of rest in the land but they don't fully take the land and they are always under threat and eventually exiled, is what um, happens to the, the Israel nation. Um, but in Hebrews 3 and in Hebrews 4, we see that Jesus has provided the rest. Uh, and um, my, my very first sermon uh, here at this church was reflecting on some of those truths from the scripture where the ultimate rest, Jesus striving is the source of our resting. And really that theme, we can see that uh, coming out already in Joshua. Uh, we also have themes like models of faith, what it looks like to trust God and do that practically. Uh, Rahab, for instance, is a model of faith, and Hebrews chapter 11 points to her, as does the Israel Israelites at Jericho. One of their kind of really significant moments of going, okay, God, this whole plan of marching around the city seems crazy, but we'll do it because we trust you. And, and for that reason, in Hebrews 11, they're also pointed to as models of faith as well as Joshua, who is consistently a leader who is faithful to God and trusts God, even when things start to go awry, like in chapter 7. And Caleb, at the end, who the two guys who were faithful in the, in the initial generation who left Egypt, uh, just come up again as models of faith and are mentioned as such in the New Testament. Ultimately, it's Jesus himself, the one who is perfectly faithful to God, perfectly faithful to the law, which is put before them to follow. Um, be perfectly obedient to God's will. And a final theme is uh, that of God's warrior. And I, th- I think it's an idea we feel a bit uncomfortable with today, and I think for, for reasonable reasons. Um, but Jesus is the one who fights on behalf of his people. But as Simon pointed us to by referring to Ephesians, it's not against physical enemies. It's against spiritual enemies, um, against sin and the devil. And we see that. Uh, we see that in Ephesians 6. Um, we see that in Colossians 2 where Jesus has defeated the principalities and powers, uh, nailing them to the cross. Uh, and we see that in the, in the vision of Revelation as well. And so in conclusion, uh, Joshua is about God's promises in action, being worked out. Not only are God's promises fulfilled, he is active in fulfilling them on behalf of his people. That's what it means for his promises to be in action. Um, and I do think a helpful verse uh, right at the beginning of the book for us to uh, dwell on is um, uh, Joshua 1.9. Uh, quite a well-known verse, you may know it. Um, Haven't I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And when God's people remember that, uh, it's to their great benefit in their experience in Joshua. Uh, and yet the same is true for us today. God's promises are still in action, and God is still with his people, uh, also where Simon took us to. There's Matthew 28, the Great Commission, Jesus himself saying, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, And
end, surely I am with you until the very end of the age. Almost deliberate echo, it seems, of the Lord's words to Joshua in chapter 1. Um, and also the book of Acts. We see the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church as uh, God sends his people out um, and works through us. And that's where we are today. That's why we're part of God's people now. Uh, here in Minchinbury, not in a specific geographical location, having to worship God there, uh, experiencing his spiritual blessing and the hope of an eternal, eternal place in the new creation because of Jesus. So these are all the great truths that come out of the book of Joshua um, and that we'll be reflecting on uh, in sermons and in our discipleship groups this year. Um, why don't I pray quickly about that? Um, we'll get Sandy to hit us quickly with some prayer points for um, youth ministry and then we'll divide up and pray for that. Let's pray quickly together. Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you, we have your word. We have the record of what you have done through your people. And as we look at Joshua this term, may you speak to each of us. We thank you for the way you work through our 2 Corinthians series to speak to various members here, all of us in ways to understand how you work uh, your strength most powerfully through weakness. And we do pray that as we look at Joshua, we may see the great truth of what it means for your promises to be active and alive, to see them fulfilled and to know that Jesus is the source of our hope. And so we pray this in his name. Amen. All right, Sandy, what can we be praying uh, for 